This is the Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 694 with Mark Gober. An end to upside down thinking, consciousness and reality. Just amazing. Enjoy. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of the Hidden Wire Podcast. Thanks very much guys for tuning in. I hope you're very well. Man, today's interview is fantastic. It's going to leave you just overwhelmed with thought about what is consciousness and how that impacts and has influence over the reality, the experience of life that we live. Mark Gobra is an author whose worldview has turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to world-changing science. After researching extensively, he wrote this book, his new book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. Man, it's just a phenomenal conversation that's really going to get you thinking. It, it sort of talks about you know, how the universe was created, the big bang, matter, the brain, consciousness. But rather than that, he flips it upside down saying perhaps consciousness came first. Perhaps this, this, this universal thing of consciousness connects us all. And what does that mean going forward? What does that mean for science going forward? What does that mean for everyday life? How is that going to impact your life, give you more meaning in life? Man, I was just overwhelmed by some of the science and the facts and the research studies that he presents in this episode that I was absolutely blown away. I've been swept off my feet before and today it is happening once again. Guys, you're going to love this interview with Mark Gober. As always, jump on to thehiddenwire.com. Use all the links in there to support the show and let us know what you think. Enjoy this interview with Mark Gober. Bye. G'day, Mark, and welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Oh, I am fantastic. Thank you. Lovely day here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Whereabouts are you in the world, mate? I live in San Francisco, but I am actually in Las Vegas. I had another interview today for a television show. Oh, so awesome. I'm on the road. So all about your new book? Yes, exactly. And so the book for the guys listening out there, it's An End to Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain produce, uh, Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. So tell us a little bit about the background um, to this book. Like what, what made you write this book and, um, and I guess your journey there? Sure. So I'm often asked um, about my background in particular because I, I'm not a scientist and I don't work in the consciousness field. Yeah, right. um, I'm a partner at a firm in Silicon Valley called Sherpa Technology Group, and we advise technology businesses on strategy and mergers and acquisitions. Wow. And, and prior to that, I was an investment banking analyst with UBS in New York during the financial crisis. I actually started in July of 2000, 2008, right before everything hit. Um, so I was there during that whole period. Okay. And prior to that, I was at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team. So when I tell people that background, it's, it's sort of like, well, how did you come up with a book on consciousness? Where's that coming from? It was and a connection. Start, yeah. <laughs> there, well, I mean, relative to my background, there isn't much connection, but it, it's really something that I've done outside of my professional life. And it started about two years ago when I first listened to podcasts, actually stumbled across them randomly. I was listening to a health podcast and a woman came on describing all sorts of abilities, like the ability to work with energy, like psychic stuff that I had never even heard of in a serious way before. But long story short, I ended up researching and listening to more people who had these experiences and then finding there was a whole body of science that I had never been exposed to throughout my education or throughout my business career in any way. 
and it shifted my worldview drastically to the point where I all I wanted to do really when I wasn't working was just research because I wanted to rethink the reality that I'm in. Hmm. And um, it took me a year where I was just researching nonstop and really for personal interest. There was no intention to write a book. And the, the idea for a book started when I, I was telling friends about the findings, and we'll get into a lot of the science in a bit, but it's a very comforting picture of reality, one that I probably would have rejected a long time ago. But when I presented people with the evidence for it, they started to tell me that their lives were shifting in a very positive direction. Even just after a single dinner, like just a discussion over dinner, people said that, wow, Mark, I'm, I'm still thinking about that conversation we had. And after enough of those, I decided, okay, why don't I try to synthesize the research I've done and put it into a book? Hmm. And I, it was the 4th of July weekend in 2017, and I basically locked myself in my apartment, didn't really leave, and just wrote for four days straight and was able to finish more than half of the book that weekend. Hmm. And then over the next few weekends, I finished it. So I came out of July 2017 with the book that is now out. That's awesome. Well, good tenant. Good tenant. Uh, indeed, and, and you know, turn around not only for your curiosity going into the field of consciousness, but then writing the book as well. But um, yeah, fantastic stuff. So consciousness. I mean, you, you, you sort of talk about this um, topic as as it has you know drastically changed your life. In what ways did your life drastically change? Now, having done the research, I would describe my old worldview and the worldview of much of the scientific community and much of the Western world as being materialistic. And I mean that in the sense of uh, philosophy. And and it goes something like this. Mm -hmm. It says that existence started 13.8 billion years ago. There was a big bang. It filled the universe with physical stuff that we call matter, like atoms, things you can touch. And then you have this big universe where atoms are interacting. We call that chemistry. With enough random chemical reactions, you're bound through chance to end up with something that's self-replicating, like DNA, and that leads to biology, like a human being, which develops a brain, and from the brain comes out consciousness. And what I mean by consciousness is our subjective inner experience. It's like our mind or our awareness. We know it's there. Anyone who's listening right now has an awareness, but it's not physical. Anyway, the materialist perspective says that that non-physical thing, that consciousness, comes from matter. We started with matter. We built our way up to chemistry, biology, to a brain, and then consciousness. Now, the implication of this perspective is that, well, if consciousness is coming from our bodies, more specifically our brain, then when the body dies, what happens? The consciousness goes away because the body and the brain are what's producing it. And if you really take that literally, which I used to, Mm. it's very difficult to come up with meaning in life, if not impossible, because once you're dead, as horrible as this sounds, your memories are gone. So nothing that happened in your life is ultimately meaningful because it's over. And that's the struggle, I think, of the materialist perspective in terms of coming up with meaning. One can try to come up with meaning, and I would try to, but I'd realize, wait a second, something great happened today or something not so good happened today? In the end, it's not going to matter, and I'm just kind of rationalizing to have meaning. So I had this internal struggle in my head of, well, what matters and why? Does anything matter? Why do I care about it? This was a personal battle? A personal battle, yeah. Hmm. And what I concluded was – the answer just is not a very comforting one, and I have to deal with it. So I wasn't looking for something new. Like I said, I kind of randomly stumbled across these things. And now, what, so that is what I consider to be the upside down thinking the notion that matter creates consciousness, or more specifically, the brain creates consciousness. What I'm arguing in my book is that 
there is a large body of scientific evidence challenging that, which instead says that instead of starting with matter and getting to consciousness, we start with consciousness and then matter, chemistry, biology, etc., hmm. are emergent within consciousness. So this is a total flip in paradigms. Hence the upside down thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. So the implications with consciousness in the typical view that consciousness comes uh, at the end after matter and that if we do die, consciousness disappears, then, you know, what, what truly matters in life, then, yeah, I can understand how that might leave one with a sense or lack of meaning in life and, you know, why bother if it's just all going to end. But that would suggest that the individual carries the consciousness and once that consciousness dies, um, all memory, um, all awareness of that individual disappears. Isn't that the case? Like, isn't when you die, the awareness of you goes? Obviously, other people can still be aware of you whilst they're still conscious and alive, um, mm-hmm. but the individual that's dead obviously has no awareness. So that's what I would have thought. And mm. what I think the research suggests now is that, at least from a philosophical standpoint, if consciousness is not dependent upon the body, if the consciousness is more primary, more fundamental, then the death of the body does not imply the death of consciousness. So that's just a general principle. But what I what I show in the book is that there's evidence suggesting that that is actually true. And this is part of what really rocked my worldview when I got into it. So the death of the brain, the death of the body doesn't actually mean consciousness um, disappears. Right. It, 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 it seems that <laughs> consciousness transitions into a different state. But yes, you're right. That's uh, what, that that's is what that, I think a very true. hard thing to sort of, I get... You know, come to grips with what? What are some of the? Um, I guess a lot of people are skeptical about this idea, and I guess we can explore that together. But um, you know, it sounds it's very it sounds very far fetched. Like if if consciousness is then not a matter of you know me being aware, but maybe something more global and um, collective. But you know, I don't carry on once I die. My awareness doesn't carry on. It would appear. Right. Right. Um, so maybe let's start back with some of the open questions in science. And this is what helped me when I was kind of framing things. The first step is there is a major question about this idea of how a brain could produce a consciousness. So if I asked your listeners, if if you're available to do this, Mm. touch your leg, super easy to do, touch your arm, super easy, touch your consciousness, touch your awareness, right? It's not physical. So Science Magazine has called this the number two question that remains in all of science. And in philosophy, it's called the hard problem of consciousness. In other words, how is it that something physical, you could just touch your body, it's physical, you proved it. How does it produce something non-physical? There's, it's a big open question. No one knows how it happens. And very smart people like Francis Crick, who Watson and Crick, he's one of the co-discoverers of the, uh, the double helix structure of DNA, after he made that discovery, he spent the rest of his scientific career trying to prove that the brain does produce consciousness and was unable to figure it out. So in the scientific community, it's, this is a big open question. So you said it's a number two question. What's the number one question? The number one question is, what is the universe made out of? Right. And under this framework we're discussing, the answer would be consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, so there's a big question about consciousness. And then people say, well, Mark, don't we already know that the brain produces consciousness? Like someone gets in a car accident and then they have memory loss or you stimulate a part of the brain, like let's say the visual cortex, and then the person has a change in their vision. Can't we just conclude that the brain produces consciousness? Well, we know that there is a strong relationship. There's a correlation. 
But we know in statistics, for example, correlation does not imply causation necessarily. And to illustrate this using a simple example, if you imagine that there's a fire, lots of firefighters show up. You have a bigger fire, more firefighters show up. So there's a strong correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters that are present. Uh, but we know that the firefighters did not cause the fire. There might be a different relationship between two things that are related. Hmm. And this is what I'm, I'm suggesting the evidence points to in my book, which is that the brain is highly related to consciousness. And that's why if someone gets in an accident, we see a shift in their experience. But I view the brain and others as well as more like an antenna or a filtering mechanism that is processing a consciousness that is not localized to or produced by the body, which is a you know, radically different perspective than what is conventionally taught. Okay. Can I – so consciousness – and I, I, I just actually had this discussion with another gentleman on the show, and, and consciousness then in, in sort of this upside-down thinking view perspective is more a universal – global collective matter it's not something that's individually produced it's it's something that's universal right right and an analogy to to simplify this because i know it's it's very abstract is is one from a philosopher dr bernardo castrop which is to envision reality as being like a stream of water where mm -hmm. water represents consciousness and each of us were part of the stream but we're like i'm a whirlpool you're a whirlpool another person's another whirlpool and we're having these localized individuated experiences but we're fundamentally part of the broader stream so right. it feels like there's an individual uh that's that is closed off from everything but at the highest level that there's an interconnectedness we're not so it's it's like our brain um what did you say tunes into the frequency of consciousness or vice versa? I think that's a really good analogy. Yeah, if you think of the brain as an antenna, it's not a precise metaphor, but it's helpful that it's tuning into like a station almost somehow. And I don't think we fully understand the mechanisms here, but now we all we've done so far is just talk conceptually. The majority of my book is scientific evidence suggesting that this theory is more uh, accommodating than the materialist view that consciousness comes from the brain or comes from matter. Okay. So conceptually, understanding that, and I like it, <laughs> I certainly do like <laughs> it, is that perhaps the brain is some sort of you know, biological organism that has developed um, through evolution to really help us better tune in to consciousness so we can experience this universal consciousness at a greater, higher level. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And that that it is a, it's a mechanism for having a certain type of experience and different bodies and different brains will, are like different lenses through which consciousness is having an experience from this perspective. Hmm. Hmm. So if, if the brain dies, basically that signal is, or that, that antenna has just snapped off and no longer is tuning into consciousness. Right, right. And in the, the whirlpool metaphor, it's like the whirlpool stops being a whirlpool. Mm -hmm. The water just flows into the broader stream. Could that then be a case that all that was my consciousness after I die is gone into the greater consciousness, transmitted it, into something like that? Or is it dying, you know, the, the memory part of the brain, I guess? Well, I, I think these are, these are really important questions. And I would 
in terms of evidence, the near-death experience is a really important phenomenon, and that's chapter nine of my book, mm-hmm. where we look at the near-death experience. I would have told you a few years ago if you'd asked me. I didn't know much about it. I would have said, well, isn't that the thing that happens right before someone dies? Their brain creates this kind of hallucination because the person's about to die, and they need to have a comforting feeling, so the brain spits out chemicals. Yeah. That's yeah. one theory, I've which is that. not really proven, but what the studies, and I, this is what really blows me away. I mean, this is from the University of Virginia, for example, Dr. Bruce Grayson, cardiologists like Dr. Pim Van Lommel, um, who are looking at people in extreme physiological distress, like cardiac arrest. I mean, this is clinical death. And what happens to a percentage of people, and one study in particular from Dr. Van Lommel was published in The Lancet, which is a very prominent journal. Um, 18% of the people who were in cardiac arrest that he spoke with afterwards reported a very lucid near-death experience. We would expect that 0%, if the brain were the exclusive producer of such a lucid experience that people talk about, that we shouldn't have anyone's experience. The most compelling cases are known as veridical out-of-body experiences. So this is part of the near-death experience. The person describes afterwards when they're resuscitated, I was hovering over my body, but the veridical part, that means that what they describe in the room as happening was verified as being accurate, and it's during the time that their brain's off. So what sort of, like of these studies, how many people have been sort of assessed with that that sort of -of out-of-body experience? So I, I believe it's roughly 100 cases of, of veridical out-of-body experiences that scientists think are, are legit, you know, that are being talked about scientifically and who knows how many more anecdotally. Okay, so, so 100 people have had these uh, near-death experiences where they can actually sort of uh, describe what the room was like um, when they're in that situation, which is accurate. Is accurate, right. And there's one most recently, in it's a journal called Resuscitation by Dr. Sam Parnia. One person was describing a sound that he heard in the room, and they have a timestamp of when that sound was made, and it was actually the defibrillator, and it was during the time that the person should have been clinically dead. Hmm. Right. That's pretty cool. I like it. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's... And I guess it's early days, but, (laughs) you know, it's it's still very interesting. But what's... What's then happening in this situation with, with such an out-of-body experience? Exactly. What, what's happening? How is it that conscious memories are being formed? And, and so I, uh, quickly, I've heard another argument of, well, how do we know that there isn't just some brain functioning happening that we don't measure? I think that's a, a far-fetched kind of imaginative explanation because to come up with an experience that's so lucid and what people usually describe in the near-death experience is that it's like realer than real. And to say that there's some unmeasurable amount of brain functioning that is solely responsible for that, I think it's hard to imagine that. I think a more reasonable explanation, at least just from what I've seen, is that there is somehow a consciousness that is um, able to experience things without uh, the functioning body. The consciousness is existing independently. And actually, this brings me to another interesting point that I came across in my research, which is that there are a number of of examples where we see a reduction in brain functioning associated with heightened or enriched experiences, which matches the idea that the brain is like a filter. Because when you sort of disrupt the filter, uh, you unlock the broader reality, so to speak. So one example, psychedelics. 
Yeah. There was a study in 2012 using psilocybin, which is the active compound in magic mushrooms. They found, the researchers found reductions in brain activity associated with hyperreal trips where people were reporting, you know, it felt realer than real. That's one example. Near-death experience, we have no brain functioning or impaired brains, and we're see- here seeing realer than real experiences. Another one, savants. So these are individuals with incredible mathematical abilities. You know, they can memorize things incredibly well, and yet their brains are highly impaired. So there's some kind of relationship here where with, if, if the brain were producing consciousness, we might expect that we would need to have a lot of brain activity to be associated with a lot of conscious experience. Hmm. So when, you, when, when the brain is, is less active or impaired... Um, there's, uh, there's reports or studies that show that, um, people in these states, like under a psychedelic trip on, uh, psilocybin, uh, are much more alive or conscious or real. Is that correct? Right. Right. So it's sort of like, how is this being measured? Uh, you're looking at, at brain activity, blood flow to the brain. Okay. So I, you know, I've this, never really 2000... sort of asked this before or looked into it, but on, on a, on a psychedelic trip, I, I would assume that the brain activity is quite in, intense in, and rapid. Right. And that's what I think we would, if we expected the brain to be the sole producer of our experience, we would, we would expect there to be all kinds of like much more activity that's correlated with this enriched experience. But yet there is reduction. There's less activity. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> There's less activity. So it's, it, it matches with this theory that the brain is a filtering mechanism or a reducing valve, as Aldous Huxley put it. So when we slow down the brain, we actually expose ourselves to things that the brain is normally filtering out of our everyday experience. Right. Huh. <laughs> it keeps you wondering, doesn't it? And I've, I've it had a, you know, psychedelic experiences before, and I know this sort of feeling – um, that you're talking about, I haven't had any great experiences, I, I guess, like where, um, you know, when you talk about more real than real, I don't know what that sort of feels like, but I certainly know the heightened level of experience that you can have on a psychedelic trip. Um, so I can sort of, and I guess the audience probably too can, can put that into some sort of level of context, um, as to what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, then there's, there's more questions that come from that and, and how can one, I guess with a, a lower level of brain activity, have a higher experience, and also, I guess, remember those experiences so vividly. Right, right. But if we think of reality as being something much bigger than our eyes can see, and we know from science that our eyes can only see a very small sliver of the electromagnetic spectrum, but if we imagine that there's all this stuff that our brain is just filtering out because it's so active, and somehow reducing the activity is exposing us to the things that we are typically just filtering out. Yeah. So is that beyond like the visuals? Because I I suppose, you know, I read a a stat that suggests that our brain is uh, one third devoted to a visual um, visual processing. So if we take away that, that segment, I mean, are we tuning into other things that perhaps we're really unaware of? Mm. Well, now you're, you're raising a point that goes back to the near death experience that I do, do mention in the book of people who have been blind since birth during the near death experience, they report being able to see, and right? then they go back to their body and they're blind again. So this is the work of, of Kenneth ring, for example. And there are a number of cases of this, which is suggesting that Maybe the bodily organs are not what are responsible for perception. Rather, they are lenses through which we perceive, but it's not, you know, we're not, our, our consciousness is not dependent on the body to have perceptions. 
So does that sort of relate to our other senses then that we're sort of, no, I guess it doesn't. It doesn't have to. If, if the vision has no role to play in that, then why, why would the other senses have a role to play? Right. It makes us, it makes us wonder, you know, what the role of the body seems, at least from my perspective now, is that it allows us to have a certain type of experience, but the consciousness itself is able of perceiving and sensing things independently of the body. Yes. Well, what other side? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's so many questions that I'm sort of flying through my mind. I'm sure the guys listening out there too um, have a lot as well. But what, what other science do you have that um, or interesting research that you found? Okay. So we've talked a, a little bit about this notion of surviving bodily death. Yeah. And I have several chapters on that, which we can discuss if there's time. But there's also a whole body of evidence for what I'll call psychic phenomena. And there's one in particular – uh, since we have a limited amount of time that is has a, a really compelling body of evidence, I think. It's called remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something without being there physically. So it's like you're seeing it, but your eyes aren't there. And I don't, I mean, it sounds totally radical. The U.S. government ran a program for more than 20 years on this phenomenon. And they actually declassified documents recently. And before they declassified documents, the people who were running the studies at Stanford University, the physicists, they all said that this was real. But the declassified documents, and this is a direct quote, and I include it in the book, they say, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. Evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. So that's pretty interesting. Um, the former U.S. President Jimmy Carter talks about, has said publicly that it was used, they used remote viewers, so people who are highly talented at this, to locate a downed Russian bomber that was lost in an African jungle. And they used the remote viewers to somehow perceive um, where this thing was. That's another example. At Princeton University, the former dean of engineering ran a lab for almost 30 years, and they ran more than 650 trials, and they suggested that remote viewing is real. Remote Another. viewing, bloody hell, eh? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's one of those things that I would just go, yeah, no, I don't, you know, and, and yeah, because uh, you see you know, fortune tellers and psychic people, you know, sitting, I just imagine someone sitting in a little tent at a, a festival or something, but uh, remote viewing, there you go. Yep, yep, and, and actually the CIA and Congress in 1995, they wanted to know whether this stuff was real. So they commissioned a woman who in 2016 was the president of the American Statistics Association, a, a, a woman named Dr. Jessica Otz, a statistician. She looked at the statistics and in 1995 reported to Congress and the CIA that if we use the standards applied to any other area of science, psychic functioning had been well established. That's what she says in her report. That psychic functioning has been like, well established. What do you mean? Yeah. Sorry, I've missed it. That thing that things like remote viewing and some other phenomena like telepathy, which I discuss, these things that sound totally outrageous, when you look at the science that has been done, uh, statistically people are able to do things beyond chance. And I'm just giving you a few snippets of of some of the evidence. Right. So how is how is this developed, or how is you know what what is the research that suggests that um, I mean, do certain people have this ability, or is it just that they're more in tune to this consciousness than others? Like it sounds totally far fetched, like for someone to be able to locate a I don't know whatever you mentioned before in the military, locate a bomb or whatever it was, a shelter. Yeah, it it does sound far fetched, and I, I would say that 
the U.S. government and probably other governments too are using people that are really, really talented. It's sort of like in basketball. You have Michael Jordan or someone who's a superstar, really talented, whereas anyone can dribble a basketball. And that's what I think is the case with these types of abilities is that we all have them to an extent. And certain people, for reasons that we might not understand, are really, really good. Whereas for the everyday person, the effect is only subtle. And I'll give an example of that. Uh, the phenomenon of telepathy, mind-to-mind communication. There have been studies done over many decades, and this falls into the category of Six Sigma statistical results, which means that the odds that this is just a chance occurrence is more than a billion to one. And in a recent book, Dr. Dean Radin talks about this this being a Six Sigma phenomenon of telepathy. This is the basic design. Bob's in a room listening Mm. to relaxing music. He's put into a relaxed, almost meditative state. Jane is in another room. Jane is given a picture or a movie by the experimenters to look at. And they say, look, Jane, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I want you to mentally send this thing you're looking at to Bob in the other room. Remember, Bob is not looking at it Mm -hmm. with his eyes. Jane does this for a while, and Bob comes out of his relaxed state. The experimenters say, okay, Bob, there are four options here. Which of the four was Jane sending to you using her mind? And you would expect that Bob would guess correctly one out of four times because there should be no effect from Jane. But what do these studies show is that it's closer to 32%. And these are everyday people. So when you do statistics on this, like I mentioned, it's very significant, even though it seems small. So these everyday people that have had no practice in all this sort of stuff, they're just being sort of tested and and to trial this out. And 33% of the time they're, they're getting it right. Right. Plus or minus. Right. And, it conforms with our everyday experience, actually, because, look, if we were 100% telepathic, we would know everyone's thoughts, for example, and that's not happening. But instead, we do sometimes, many of us experience something where we think of somebody and then we get a text from them, and we haven't thought of that person in a while. And maybe that's like this 32% where, or 33 where something seems to be getting through sometimes, and that's maybe the everyday person, whereas you have people in these government programs who are somehow way more talented. But bigger than coincidence. Oh, I was actually just thinking of calling you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bigger than coincidence, right? Okay. What What are the some of some of the other studies or evidences that show that this is other than statistically that this is more possible? Because this is, I mean, this is quite major. Yeah, I mean, if we could really invest our science into these areas, imagine the potential. You got it. And that's why I felt so compelled to write this, because when you put these different areas together into one place, there's an analogy I use of like any stick or twig is easy to break. But when you put them together into a bundle, it's more difficult to break the bundle. And that's what it appears to me when you look at each of these phenomena that we're just scratching the surface on. It's really hard for me to disprove all of them. And I'll give you another example. Um, The University of Virginia, the Division of Perceptual Studies at their medical school. So again, this is a credible institution. For the last 50-plus years, they've been studying children, usually between the ages of 2 and 5, over 2,500 cases, who spontaneously start speaking of a life that's not theirs. And the details are so specific that the researchers in many cases, or in the most compelling cases, are able to find a person that died in the exact manner that the child is describing. And to me, the most compelling cases are ones where the children have birthmarks or physical deformities that match the described death of some other person that used to live, and the researchers are able to find something, uh, find a person that died in that way. Geez, that would make it's, a great movie. It's mind-blowing. 
<laughs> um, like, um, so, so what was the study example they they got how many kids like what was this so there are over 2500 cases that 20. they've looked at and they're varying degrees of strength right some cases where the, what the child is describing like there's one i mentioned in the okay, book so of, these are kids was, that are between two and five that have started just started to talk unusually about some other life yes and then they and sort the of reason, are taken in to sort of assess for the parents that report it, I can only imagine how many are not reported, but I guess for the parents who reported and then find these researchers, the researchers have aggregated over 2,500 cases that have varying degrees of strength in terms of you know, some cases they just cannot come up with ordinary reasons for how the children could have these memories. Or sometimes it's even preferences where the children are craving things or they want alcohol or tobacco or things that – or they have fears of drowning and yet in the in this alleged previous life they died of drowning um some cases it's called xenoglossy this this is a rare phenomenon with an x z x e n e n o where the children start speaking a language they were never taught that'd be freaky wouldn't it um i've got a three-year-old so (laughs) (laughs) what um what's an example of something that a child might start saying that that would elude one to go oh this is a bit strange other than them suddenly talking German if they're a native English speaker? Well, one of the cases that the researchers talk about as being particularly strong is one of of, uh, a child who described dying in a plane crash and had very specific details. He just kept saying airplane crash on fire and just like smashing airplanes into a table over and over again. And he kind of had this obsession with World War II. And ultimately, basically, the, the researchers were able to find a single pilot that died that matched the description of this child. Hmm. And it was one person in a plane in World War II. Hmm. Wow. That's crazy. With with an increasing population, is there any sort of research that might suggest that this is this these sort of phenomenons will be more frequently um, discovered? Because I mean I'm just thinking of that river of consciousness. Now, if one body dies, um, there's with a greater population of whirlpools, there's more chance for a crossover. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And there, there might be cultures that are more open to the ideas and more open to exploring them rather than just saying, oh, little Johnny is, is just speaking of something and not really taking it seriously. So maybe cultures that are already predisposed to consider you know, alternative pictures of, of life and death might be more willing to report. But there are uh, some reports of... of children in the u.s as well that didn't have any you know, prior family history of thinking in like life after life yeah, um yeah. but i i think you might be right that maybe it's just the fact that we there's more and more people that and if the percentage of the population that has these sorts of things is is maybe small or the anomalies occur here and there if we have more people there will by definition be a higher number of incidences yeah well you look at like i mean collision in space i mean how infrequent would that be I don't know, but with more matter out there floating around, then it's going to be more frequent. Mm-hmm. Don't know. Interesting. What um, what about placebo? What what sort of? Because I, I sort of could think that maybe placebo, you know, the placebo effect has something to do with this this upside down thinking of consciousness. Well, I think it does. In that, the placebo effect is suggesting that the way we think about things can have an impact on the outcome. Hmm. 
right? Even if, and, and that's something that I do talk about in the book. Um, there's a phenomenon known as psychokinesis, which is the ability for the mind to have an effect on physical matter, which again, under this materialist view that brain, the brain produces consciousness, we would expect that consciousness would have no role in affecting the physical world. Whereas if consciousness is like this stream, that's the basis of reality, then the physical world is almost like malleable. That's yeah. a one way to think about it. So the evidence for psychokinesis, and I think this gets back to the placebo effect of how is our mind affecting us and in, in how we perceive things and what the outcomes are. There have been many studies done at Princeton University. Again, the, the former dean of engineering had a lab, and they had machines that are called random number generators. So these are machines that generate a zero or a one in a totally random fashion. And when you look at the pattern of zeros and ones, it's 50% ones, 50% zeros yeah. over the long run. What they ask people to do, in, to do in these studies is to put their mind to the machine. So they say, hey, John, I want you to make the machine produce more ones. You're not touching it. You're at a distance, but I want your mind to be focused on it. What the experimenters find is that there is a really tiny, but using statistics, it's very significant that the machine is producing slightly more ones than zeros, which hmm. is suggesting, if we acknowledge that there's an, a real effect, that the mind is having, at the very minimum, an effect on the physical process. Yeah, right. So... Um Becoming a Jedi might be totally possible. I will say I'm more open to that now than I used to. <laughs> Mate, it sounds like an absolutely um, amazing bit of research. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, just our conversation alone gets you thinking, but the book as well. Um, so I know the guys are going to be uh, getting out there and, and picking up a copy. And then to Upside Down Thinking, um, available now at Amazon. Yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many bookstores, uh, but also my website has more information, which is my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. Okay, I'll stick all the links in the show notes, guys, plus a copy of the book as well. So if you want to support the show, The Hidden Why, jump on to thehiddenwhy.com, check out the show notes, and um, use the links within. Mark, what what sort of resting point do you have after writing this book, and what's next for your research and curiosity? Well, I think a lot about the implications of all these things, because at least for me, having seen the extensive body of research and having spoken to many of these scientists and people who've had the experiences, there's, I think there's something here. And that has major implications, like you said, for our science and for our medicine and technology. If there's this whole other realm that we are just kind of ignoring as a mainstream scientific community, you know, what kinds of advances might we see? So I think it's really important personally that we invest more time as a society on these areas. And so that's important to me. But also I just see that the world has tons and tons of problems that I think, and I've heard this from others too, stems at the core to a belief that we are fundamentally separate from one another. And that leads to incentives that do not promote uh, collaboration, or they promote some of the bad things that we see in the world. If that's actually not true, that we're fundamentally separate, if we're all connected, and there's a quantum entanglement phenomenon that I talk about. So there are things in the fabric of reality that suggest that we're connected in addition to this consciousness idea. How might we act towards one another hmm. if we're connected? So I think it's a really, really big idea, particularly given the state of the world today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it has a lot of implications to the state of the world today and on many different levels, not just the um, you know, collaborative global sort of connection that we, that we need to 
bring together. But, you know, uh, climate change, I think there's a connection there. And also AI and tech, um, you know, they say that AI will never be conscious. Um, but if conscious isn't a matter of, uh, you know, creating from some sort of biological um, being and it's actually tuning into it, then why couldn't we create something that could tune into this consciousness? It's a really interesting point you raise. Yeah, I mean, can we create consciousness from a machine? I would argue no, because matter is not what's creating consciousness. But what you're, you're, you raise a really creative point is can we configure matter in a way that it is processing consciousness in the same way that our brain is somehow con- processing it? It's an important question. Why not? Why not? Well, I've got some important questions to ask you now, Mark. The quick round questions. The first question I want to ask you is, do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Well, for me, in the last two plus years, it's been a process of thinking my old worldview of what my eyes show me to moving towards this other reality that's much bigger than what my eyes show me. And I think now part of my routine is just remembering that reality that I've come to appreciate, which I sometimes can get drawn away from because the physical world and our eyes and our ears are very, um, they're very seductive in, in making us think that that is it. So I think it's a constant reminder throughout the day of, oh, remember this broader reality that you've been researching. Okay, cool. How do you define success? Hmm. I think I'm probably used to, uh, my old answer would have been uh, much more materially driven, I think. Yeah. And, and now it's much more about following passions. Yeah. That if I'm following my passions and, and doing things that I'm passionate about as much as possible, then that is all I can ask for. Okay, cool. Um, what, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Do some consciousness research. <laughs> <laughs> because I wasn't back then. How old are you now? 32. Okay, cool. And what one tool, um, tool or product or technique do you have or use that you believe contributes to your overall effectiveness or productivity? Sensory deprivation flotation tanks. Are you familiar with them? Yeah. Okay, it's basically get into a, a pot of salt water, and it's you can turn the lights off and have no sound, and it's sensory deprivation, so you're just in a very meditative state. I have found, even though I haven't been doing it as much recently, that it can be a very relaxing state, even if I'm thinking while I'm in there. And I also find that it is helpful if I have a problem that I'm trying to figure out. I tend to come out with a solution afterwards or just feel better about it. Mm. And who knows if we think of our brain as being like this antenna, maybe being in the sensory deprivation state gets rid of a lot of the noise. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I like that. And I've actually, um, it was a Joe Rogan. I think it was talked about that recently because I know he uses it. He's got one. And, um, he was sort of saying the similar things as you just said, you know, to help you think, to help you through certain problems, to help you relax, all that sort of stuff. Um, really powerful things. What does it cost over there to um, you know, go to one of these places, or do you have one yourself? I don't own one, but there are in San Francisco especially, there are a bunch of places popping up. Yeah. And it's, it's, when I first started doing it, I think it was like $60 for an hour session. The prices yeah. have probably gone up. But it's, you know, it's an investment, and it's, at certain points it can be really helpful to just take yourself out of the world, and then you come out refreshed. Yeah, I'm going to have to give it a go. I haven't tried it yet. That's cool. Um, 
couple of fun questions. What, if you were to be served your last meal, what would you request? Chocolate cake with ice cream. Okay. What is, what, what activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Well, this answer has changed over time. I would say now when I'm researching something that I'm really interested in, that's my favorite thing to do. What one book would you pass down to your children or future generations? Hmm. Well, I'll say I tried to write the book that fits that description, but I'm not going to say that my own book. Um, I, I would say that Larry Dossey, MD, wrote a book called One Mind, which has a lot of parallels to my book, and I, I really enjoy his work. One Mind is a really good one. Cool. I will definitely stick that in the show notes along with yours as well. So guys, check it out again at thehiddenwhy.com. The links will be in the show notes. What what quote, uh, phrase, or message would you tweet or text the entire world if you could? Hmm. I start chapter one with a quote from Arthur Schopenhauer, which says that all truth goes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed, then it's violently opposed, then it's accepted as truth. And I think we've seen that with many cycles of science, and it seems to me we're kind of at the next version of that. We saw it with Galileo. He had his evidence in the telescope that the Earth wasn't at the center of the solar system, and you had clergymen that didn't want to look in the telescope because it challenged the worldview. I think we have something very similar right now with consciousness. Yeah, that's cool. Do you believe we will have a hidden one? I think we do. Um, I think that all of us have something probably deep with inside of ourselves that is, is passionate about something or, or has a, a deeper purpose for, um, for what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And I think for many of us, it's, it's a matter of trying to figure out what that is for each of us. How do you think consciousness has a role to play in the purpose of an individual? Now we're getting very speculative, but, <laughs> um, you know, I've looked at this and it's not uh, anything I'll say here is, is like kind of anecdotal from talking to diff- a lot of different people, but there are some arguments that the individual body is like one way of having a learning experience. So my body versus someone else's body will afford consciousness, different learning experiences uh-huh. in a targeted way. And like Tony Robbins says, life is happening for you, not to you. And now with the research I've done, I I think about what maybe is that what he's referring to, that that we each have our own uh, learning journey in a particular body. I don't know if that can be proven, but it's something that I've seen come up a number of times. Interesting. What does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? I think it's kind of a feeling where you just kind of know what you're doing is on target and there's no doubt. When you get in that state, I find that that one ends up in flow and there's there can be much less resistance than there would be otherwise. Yeah, cool. And what do you believe is the underlying motivation behind everything you do? Well, I used to struggle with that because I thought life had no meaning, so why have a motivation? <laughs> yeah. And now, now I think the underlying motivation for me is I want to understand the nature of reality because how I behave in the world is directly related to what I think the reality is. Yeah, cool. 
lots to um, lots to get you thinking today. Thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. Uh, certainly has got me thinking, and and I'll probably leave this uh, in a state of thinking about this conversation. So I do appreciate that. It's it's great, great stuff, great food for the mind, and uh, I'm sure the audience appreciates it too. So again, how can they best reach out to you? Thank you very much. Um, my website is a great way, markgober.com, yep. and also Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, social media. Right. Cool. Guys, check it out. Um, jump on online, get a copy of the book, reach out to Mark and connect and ask some more questions yourself because sometimes it's the bigger questions of our existence that certainly do um, help everyday life and happiness. So thank you, Mark, for coming on and sharing that with us today. Thank you so much for having me, and I just love talking about the ideas and and creating conversation. That's cool. Until next time, guys, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Mamutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon